I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Before we start, a very quick program note. This episode is part of a much longer series. To be sure you get the whole story, we recommend that you jump back and start from episode one. Also, we want to invite any of our thousands of listeners who still use Facebook to join our friendly show group, which currently only has a couple of hundred fun-loving folks. Just search for the show's name. Finally, whether you do social media or not, please do drop us a line to tell us what you like or hate on the show at theparanoidstrain, that's all one word, at gmail.com. Okay, let's get going. Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. When people talk about the satanic panic of the 80s, they may be talking about one of two things. The first is the main topic we'll be covering here, that is, the series of bizarre and seemingly impossible accusations made by very young children in various unrelated locations throughout the US and Canada against their caregivers, especially those who ran early childhood daycare centers. These scenarios flared up through the 80s, and the alleged crimes ranged from run-of-the-mill sexual abuse to completely bizarre scenarios involving dozens or hundreds of perpetrators, ritual torture, scarring, and killing of young children, infants, and animals, and the supposed existence of extensive interstate or even international satanic sex abuse cults who perpetrated these living nightmares. In many cases, these panics led to widespread arrests and trial of apparently blameless adults in spite of the existence of essentially no physical evidence that any of these accusations ever even happened. Fortunately, these miscarriages of justice were almost all eventually overturned, but only after both the alleged perpetrator and the purported victims had had their lives ruined to one degree or another. In the first case, due to lingering suspicions about their having committed the worst crimes imaginable, and in many cases actual years-long prison sentences, and in the second case, because their memories were corrupted by made-up, implanted scenes of terrifying abuse that never happened. But before diving into that horrific mess, it's worth noting that there was a broader movement that could be termed a sort of Satanism obsession that touched on many, many aspects of cultural life in the U.S. during the same period. In his excellent review of the influence of the occult on mainstream culture and vice versa from the 60s through the 80s, titled Here's to My Sweet Satan, Author George Case reminds us of the truly astonishing proliferation of satanic and associated images that flowed through both counter- and mainstream culture during the period, from the obscure but somehow sinister lyrics of Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven, to the smash success of iconic films like Rosemary's Baby, The Exorcist, and The Omen, or even as anodyne in entertainment as the tame, played-for-laughs, non-spooky monsters of Scooby-Doo, well, because they always ended up being some ill-tempered but very human perpetrator, playing up the idea of ghosts and monsters for personal benefit, was always a favorite with the young but already somewhat skeptical, fearful Jesuit. 
case shows us how the whole culture embraced a dance with the dark side as the post-war economy flared and then sputtered, and very real failures of institutions and the monoculture fragmented American life. Having been a child and then teenager during the 80s and early 90s, I'm uniquely attuned to this cultural obsession. I remember just getting into the first version of Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, only to have my level-headed, calm-but-religious mom express some concerns about the potentially demonic implications that the game might have. She, of course, had heard the entirely apocryphal story about a teen's suicide over the death of his character that was later fictionalized in the terrible early Tom Hanks movie Mazes and Monsters, and so wanted to make sure her nerdy child wasn't on the role-playing road to hell. Needless to say, a Ouija board was not getting anywhere near the Jesuit household. That's how the real demons get you. Yeah, those things creep me out to this day, even though I'm pushing 50, I'm very aware that the Ouija board's whole eerie effect is just an unconscious muscular tick called the idiomotor response, and demonic possession is silly. In the immortal words of Philip Larkin, They fuck you up, your mum and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. The explosion of spooky, occult, or demonic shit in the period is hard to overstate. For example, though overheated news stories on the topic continue to this day, the 80s were the height of the poison or razor blades in your kid's Halloween candy panic. Which was based on a real, genuinely horrifying story from 1974, where a father deliberately poisoned his own son's pixie stick, blamed it on someone his kid had trick-or-treated, and tried to collect the life insurance policy he had recently taken out on the boy. Yeah, by the early 80s, every mom had digested that grim bit of news, then the many fake stories that grew out of it, and then the subsequent almost entirely apocryphal tales of razor blades and candy apples and such. This was all weirdly tied into the perceived rise of Satanism at the time, that somehow the combination of spooky Halloween and the supposed efforts to poison or maim children via tasty treats were an outgrowth of the machinations of Beelzebub and his many, many secret human followers. This was clearly the subtext of the then-famous trial in which parents of one teen who killed himself and another who had horrifically maimed himself attempting suicide after listening to a Judas Priest album sued the band, claiming they had deliberately put back-masked subliminal messages into a song that then prompted the kids' subsequent actions. Why would the band do this? Because they loved the devil and wanted to spread his message of hate and violence or something. We know this sounds like a stretch, but trust him. It was all somehow connected in the middle-class parent brain. Absolutely. The general tenor of the times was that Satanists were everywhere, secretly infiltrating everything. And as Case's book points out, the more that conservative religious groups treated the often fairly ironic, sometimes satirical, and generally benign experimentations with occult materials in youth culture as deadly serious assaults on both Christianity and common decency, and then reacted accordingly, that is, with completely over-the-top panic. That situation, of course, only made the very occult shit the squares were freaking out about more appealing to edgy teens everywhere, leading to more Satan-affirming music and imagery, thus leading to more Christian backlash, in a perverse feedback loop that led both groups to feel they were under siege by an implacable, irredeemable foe. One of the most egregious examples of this sort of thinking was covered in the three Paradise Lost documentaries about the arrest, conviction, and eventual freeing of the so-called West Memphis Three a group of teens who were blamed for the horrific torture murders of three young boys in West Memphis, Arkansas in 1993. The questionable evidence against the accused was unquestionably bolstered in the minds of the investigators by the fact that the suspects were the kind of kids who listened to heavy metal music and did weird pseudo-satanic rituals in the woods. So, of course, when a horrific crime came along, there was no real question who they should presume the perps were. After all, as a decade of cultural panics had taught them, 
The Satanists were secretly everywhere. Lest you believe that the law enforcement types who promulgated this blame the metalheads approach were insincere, I invite you to visit the Internet Archive, where you can enjoy the absolutely delightful presentation, The Law Enforcement Guide to Satanic Cults. Due to the graphic nature of this program, viewer discretion is advised. I'm Gordon Coulter. For many years I served as a law enforcement officer. Today it's my privilege to host this program on a little known area in law enforcement, but important to every small community and every large city across our vast country. It's the area of satanic cults and how they impact our families, our children, and our communities. Old Gordo is really selling himself short in the voiceover here, as the caption makes sure you're aware that he is a cop slash pastor, and therefore you better listen to the real hard-hitting shit he's about to lay down, you feel? I feel you. Preach, officer. With Reverend Columbo Van Helsing on the case, it's a sure bet we're on the road to stamping out this satanic menace before it threatens our well-scrubbed, innocent, white teens. But unfortunately, it's not that simple. Many cults fall under the protection of the United States Constitution, the freedom of religion. When we talk of cults and Satanism from a law enforcement perspective, we have to tread lightly. That is one of the reasons it is so difficult to investigate Satanic cult activities. We know what the Satanic cult professes to believe. We know what their potential for violence might be if they choose to be true to their belief. We even have evidence, here and there, that leads us to believe that some sort of rituals are taking place. However, unless we catch them actually breaking the law, or find evidence that leads directly to participants in some illegal activity, we have no case. Goddamn pinko commie simp ACLU. What we need to do, Jesuit, is just get down in the filth with these animals and crack some fucking skulls. I'll teach them. We are definitely going to have to limit your exposure to Charles Bronson movies, Dana. Next, the video turns its spotlight on one Eric Pryor, a self-reported former Satanist who gives us a tour of a local neighborhood park which just happens to be absolutely rife with Satanic activity. When I was a practicing occultist, oftentimes I would come into this park and uh, practice on various different holidays, uh, lunar holidays and occultic holidays, and We'd actually have rituals in the park when we didn't have a space to do rituals indoor. Uh, so what I'd like to do is take you into the park and just kind of show you one of the places that you would start asking your questions and start looking to see, you know, what the occultists are up to. There's two different communities that use this park. One is the pagan or occultic community, and the other community is, of course, the homosexual community. Interestingly enough, uh, they go hand in hand. Did he just say that the gay community and the devil worshippers go hand in hand? He did, indeed, Dana. But there's a lot more where that came from. Upon entering the park, I mean, you can see they've already got started. This is a pentacle. Now, right over here, I can see on a tree here, there's an inverted cross. Now, this is satanic. Well, it's actually fairly fresh, too. This here, of course, is a bastardization of Christianity, and it's a very common symbol. Obviously, they probably had a party or, or a ritual here uh, within the past night or two. This is what I'm talking about. What you're looking at here is called Voodoo Vivi. This is kind of like a coat of arms, if you will, uh, for the demonic. And someone has made it very clear uh, they were probably worshipping Set, because it, it says Set here, so it's pretty obvious. 
Of course, we don't have the benefit of the visuals in this here podcast, but as our guide walks through this unassuming public park, it appears that the denizens of Satan have just festooned every available surface with super obvious ritual symbols. Now, we're not the kind of folks who will just cast aspersions on every earnest, credulous presentation designed to stoke the irrational fears of the public, especially the part of the public licensed to carry guns as part of their jobs. What are you talking about? You are exactly that kind of folks. Oh yeah, I guess what I just said was obviously untrue. But it wasn't as blatantly full of shit as the idea that this dude just happened to find an example of every sort of satanic cult graffiti he needed to illustrate his points by wandering around the nearest average urban park on a random day. And wouldn't you know it, some enterprising young skeptical smartass journalist actually tracked down the history of this bizarre piece of 90s cultural flotsam, and it turns out that the producers indeed just created a cynical made-for-hire bullshit tape designed specifically to be sold to cops and gun enthusiast types who had already bought into the general fear of the devil's minions that was in the air at the time. Not that anyone bothered to tell Gordon Coulter, who again is just as hilariously sincere as can be. The article's author, Harmon Leon, writing for Mel Magazine Online, gives us the inside story of how this thing came to pass. Apparently, an enterprising independent producer approached the man who now owns the largest Glock megastore in the United States. Some sentences that describe your homeland are like Lord of the Rings level fantasy to European, you know. I am well aware. And yet, there are Glock megastores here, and this guy now owns the biggest one. Anyway, the gun guy decided he could probably sell the final product to the kind of gun nuts who subscribed to his company's mailers and who were presumably itching for an opportunity to dirty Harry some perforations in the local satanic punk before he rips the guts out of a cheerleader to honor Samhain or some hippie Manson shit like that. Leon also tracked down a production assistant who basically confirms the suspicions of everyone who had seen this thing, that the graffiti in the park is a little too convenient, and that he shares the authors, my, and every other viewer with a brain in his or her head's opinion, that our eager former Satanist guide spent an hour or so before the camera showed up, traipsing through the park drawing crude versions of every vaguely occultic symbol he could dream up to add some weight to his subsequent presentation. There's plenty more weird-slash-hilarious material in this tape, but the capper comes when all of a sudden Mr. Cop Pastor Mustache Grandpa peels back a canvas tarp to reveal a 90s bikini model festooned in dotted sharpie marker lines indicating the many, many places where the Satanists would carve up her mostly naked body. He points out each of these in turn, which represent the wounds an investigator should expect to find on a victim of Satanic ritual sacrifice. Given that the woman is pretending to be unconscious, and that her host is wearing the cospiest of cospy sweaters, this scene reads as highly disturbing in 2022. But even in its time, this had to be pretty fucking strange, right? You'd think so. Certainly, it's now one of my greatest life regrets that I didn't, as a smarmy, irony-obsessed 90s college student, have a copy of this to get drunk and watch with my friends. And it's not the only earnest pseudo-documentary put out by the squares to address the largely imaginary satanic invasion of the United States. Another is... Jesuit, how many times now have you paused to add another aside before getting to the actual point of the section of the show? I know. But this is my era unicorn. It's the first historical period where I was a fully functioning adult fearful Jesuit, absorbing my culture in real time even as I was entering maturity. This is the shit that shaped me, for better or worse. And given that I grew up in the South, you best believe I had plenty of Satan hysteria happening all around me. I was surrounded by young soldiers for Christ, clad in their youth ministry retreat shirts on the way to their before-school-day prayer meetings, and they, and especially their parents, took this whole Satan-invading-the-culture thing very, very seriously. After all, didn't you know, 
we were only a few years away from the millennium, and plenty of people expected that, in the words of Tom Waits. But you're right, I've been circling around this topic for a long time, like Billy Pilgrim sitting in an interstellar zoo, avoiding the memory of February 13th, 1945. Maybe turn down the pretension just a tad? Okay, okay, like Yosarian finally confronting what's under Snowden's arm. That's turning down the pretension? Sorry, but it's time for me to face the music, like Hal Incandenza finally taking his turn to speak at his college admission interview. I give up. Okay, seriously, I'm done now. I'll stop. But it's true. I did all of these interviews and all of this research, and I'm still kind of loath to write this part of the script because the story we have to tell here is just unrelentingly bleak. Mentally ill parents igniting a blaze of fear for children's welfare that eventually leads to emotionally scarred kids, wrongfully imprisoned adults, and communities where the sense of safety and trust is exploded, maybe never to be fully repaired. So I'm going to start telling this story. But I did keep one really funny satanic panic topic in reserve, and I plan to just drop it in the middle of this section whenever I feel like it gets too awful to contemplate. So consider this your warning. We are officially notified. With that, I want to introduce the co-author of a remarkable book called Satan's Silence. It was published in 1995 when the embers of the full panic were only beginning to die away, and when the suggestion of demonic influence on a seemingly senseless crime was still a powerful weapon to be wielded against innocent bystanders. That's a little something we call foreshadowing, folks. But our interviewee's experience with this phenomenon started years before her book was finally published. We'll let her walk you through her early experiences herself. Please note, due to circumstances beyond our control, large sections of our incredibly interesting interview turned out to have some extremely poor sound quality. We've done our level best to improve the situation, but it's still pretty lousy sounding, in spite of our efforts. We hope you'll bear with us. We believe her story is so fascinating that it is totally worth suffering through some audio issues. My name is Debbie Nathan. I'm a journalist and have been for decades now. I got involved with Satanic Panic because I was living in El Paso, Texas. This was back in 86. I was working at the Daily Paper, the little USA Today provincial paper. I also had my child in daycare, my four-year-old. In El Paso, Texas, we had a daycare Satanic sex abuse case that really roiled the whole city and particularly parents like me who were terrified to have our kids in daycare anymore. I actually never covered this story while I was at the paper, but then I started freelancing for the national press, primarily about immigration, but I was doing a lot of writing for the Village Voice in New York City. Had a wonderful editor who was a really, really brilliant feminist. She got a hold of me one day in the fall of 86. I was very pregnant at the time. I was not very mobile. And she said, I want you to go out to LA because I just saw this uh, 60 minutes show about this case, the McMartin case. And it was skeptical about these people's guilt. And I was wondering if you could go out there and in the next three weeks, prepare for me a long essay about this case. And it was weird because the McMartin case had started a lot earlier. And when my child was about two years old, I remember rocking in the rocking chair with her and hearing about the McMartin case on the radio. So I guess this would have been in about 84. And I remember hearing about these old ladies and middle-aged women. And I think the idea that was being sort of put out at the time was if these kinds of people could do this, then anyone could do this. And we don't know what's right around the corner or under the bush, and this could happen to your child. It was really frightening. 
as soon as Ellen Willis, who was my editor at The Voice, said, hey, I'd like you to check into this, all of a sudden I was like, wait a minute, it's true. There's something really weird about this case in El Paso, too. And I told her that I couldn't go to L.A. because I was eight months pregnant. But as a matter of fact, we had a case that seemed almost identical in El Paso, and I could do that from here. I didn't know anything about these cases at the time. I had no global perspective. Two women, one was in her late 30s, the other was early 40s. They were both mothers. They had no records at all, not even parking tickets. And they had both been convicted by the time I had this conversation with my editor, and they'd been sent away for a very, very long time to prison. I started doing this reporting, just kind of the nuts and bolts stuff. Okay, they've been accused of basically torturing, sexually torturing a very large group of kids over many, many months. And they've been accused of taking this group of three-year-olds and four-year-olds and walking them a mile away to one of the teacher's houses, spending a long time there, taking their clothes off and torturing them sexually, and then dressing them again and walking back. Time, motive, opportunity. Could these people have done this? Did they have some reason to do it? They didn't seem to have a motive that I could figure out. They didn't have any criminal history. Nobody was saying that they had a history of mental illness. So then I said to myself, did they have the opportunity? Meaning, could they have gotten away with it? So I remember going to the daycare and I saw that all the classrooms had great big glass windows. And so there was no privacy. I thought, all right, let me see if they could have actually walked to this house to do this to the children during the whatever it was, 45 minutes or an hour that they had for lunch. And I remember sticking my newborn into a stroller, and then I had my four-and-a-half-year-old holding my hand, and we, we did this walk, just the three of us. And it took me forever with two kids, with a stroller and a four-year-old. We just walked to the house and back, and that in itself took the entire time. So that didn't even include the torture model station, dressing and undressing. And by the way, none of these children had ever had so much as a garment disordered. So I thought, okay, there's something really wrong with this. And so what I have to figure out is, why did this happen? Where did these accusations come from? The defense attorney actually lived next door to me. He was very passionate that these people were falsely accused. He was very eager to give me the discovery materials, including the child interviews that were done by the social workers and the police. You know, reading these interviews, it was very clear that these kids were undergoing a tremendous amount of pressure and suggestion. As I delved into this further, started finding out that a lot of the techniques that had been used by the police had come literally from McMartin, that the McMartin social worker and I believe some of the other people involved in interviewing the kids had actually come out to El Paso to train the people that were doing this in El Paso. There was a lot of talk during this case in El Paso about how this was happening all over the country and the children were all talking about the same things. And so therefore, there must be this at least national, if not international, satanic conspiracy to do this to children in daycare. The theories range from simplistic to really complex. I guess the easiest one was the Satanists just want to do bad things to kids. And then the more complicated one was the Satanists want to mind control the kids. So they want to do these sexual tortures and then, I guess, implant some kind of signals or something psychologically or mentally in the kids so that when the kids are grown-ups, the Satanists will snap their fingers or say some code word or something and then the kids will, sort of like Manchurian candidates, they will become satanic adults. 
But I started realizing that they were all sort of teaching each other. The conspiracy really, I'm using that word in quotes, but people were traveling all over the country and spreading these theories and these techniques, which have since then shown to be very faulty. I wrote my first piece for the Village Voice about the El Paso case. And there wasn't a lot of skeptical journalism being done back. I noticed, interestingly, that very few of the people that were doing this journalism had children, because back then there were very few women still in these rooms. Most of the people that were doing news were men. And the only ones who seemed to be skeptical were the ones where their wives were home taking care of the kids. But at least they had kids, so they saw how kids behaved. I was one of the only women that was even looking at these cases, and I was very grateful that I had children and kind of had that insight into what children's behavior is actually like. Now Debbie's on the case, and we have plenty of reason to doubt the established narrative of satanic rapist daycares popping up across the nation. But it's important to acknowledge that the concern that eventually fueled the panic was born out of some genuinely heroic, crusading efforts to bring real, awful, usually intra-family sexual abuse into the consciousness of a public that really, really didn't want to hear about it, and law enforcement authorities who were even more resistant. Ms. Nathan's book, co-authored by defense attorney Mike Snedeker helps us understand how little attention was paid to these cases in the decade before the panic. As the book notes, the situation prior to the late 70s was absurdly skewed in favor of defendants in the most common incest cases, which inevitably involved pubescent girls making accusations against their fathers. In a typical case, after the arraignment, the father would remain in the home with the victim before trial so he could have plenty of time to coerce her into recanting before the proceedings could even begin. And if dear old dad was the sole breadwinner, a conviction could have economically devastating impacts on the family. As a result, many mothers pressured their daughters to recant simply to keep everyone from falling into poverty. Oh my God. Then, even if against the odds the father actually ended up prosecuted, the most likely scenario would end with him pleading guilty and going home to the family on probation with a promise to go to therapy, though attendance at even that meager requirement could be spotty, and failure to attend or suddenly piecing out of treatment permanently would often go unreported by the therapists. This is sickening. Why wasn't there more outcry? As the authors note, the left-wingers didn't want to support tough-on-crime approaches to anything, given their broader conflict with police and prosecutorial overreach against many defendants, especially the impoverished. And meanwhile, the right didn't want to encourage anything that could be perceived as contributing to the breakup of families, or on the economic side that could increase the number of people on welfare. I can see why you were shying away from this topic now, Jesuit. It's fucking bleak. It gets so much worse. Like, for example, this horrific revelation. In the pre-advocacy period, doctors would often implicitly blame wives for their husbands' disgusting incestual acts. The authors focused their readers' attention on one particularly repulsive but influential example, a Dr. Roland Summit, who came up with a theory to explain the incest dynamic. He called it, Actually, Dana, why don't you tell us? You're a cruel man. He called it the family romance dynamic. Ew. <laughs> Look on the bright side. I'm the one who has to do the actual explaining. Okay, deep breath. 
Here goes. Dr. Summit starts with this highly sympathetic description of the perpetrator. Quote, The hapless father, who would never approach a child on the playground, now that he has his own children, naturally felt a certain erotic attraction for the, again, please understand that I am quoting here, the delicious little creatures he has spawned. Wait, this is a quote? Like an actual quote from a medical professional? Yes, and you're not alone in that reaction. The authors note with disgust that this married 40-something father of daughters implied it was perfectly common for men to see their children as sexually delicious. I will never stop showering. I know the feeling. But Dr. Summit goes on to explain that as the middle-aged man sees his horizons shrinking, his bitch wife... Jesuit is lightly editorializing here, but the original sentiment is pretty close. She isn't even around to take care of his needs because she has the nerve to instead work on her career. She did this not because the evolving state of the American economy, inflation, and a series of price shocks had made two-earner incomes a necessity for many families, but rather because this preening narcissist felt, again we're quoting, depressed at the loss of her youth and the waning of her girlish attraction, and therefore was no longer, quote, invested in endorsing her husband's ego needs. Or, in other words, as the authors characterize it, it is the wife's fault her husband's eye is wondering, because she is a shitty, shitty partner. At the same time that his marriage is fizzling through no fault of his own, this domestic Humbert Humbert realizes his once-enchanting toddler daughter is now, another icky quote incoming, quote, an adolescent who was learning to transmit the magical vibrations our society requires of the emergent woman. Mercurial, kittenish, provocative, enigmatic, with the fragile innocence of a child mixed with the vaguely destructive allure of the temptress. She's the opposite of mom, focused on her father's needs, a good, traditional wife. When is this part of the show over? Not for quite a while, Dana. Apologies. So, the good doctor asks rhetorically, how is this man supposed to resist such temptation? Especially when his wife is, quote, remarkably oblivious to the situation, since it frees her up from meeting her husband's sex-pestering demands. Please note that Jesuit's original idea for this part of the script was to parody Dr. Summit's horrific scenario with a satirical skit in which porn performers who are used to filming step-parent sex fantasies are confronted by Dr. Summit's terrifying vision of modern American family life and walk off the set in protest. But honestly, it just never came out funny. This whole thing is just too vile to parody. But as horrifying as all of that was, it's great that the authors provide that background so that we can understand that the pendulum was originally swung so far against sex abuse victims that the crimes perpetrated against them were almost never addressed in a way that promoted either justice or healing. So it's not surprising that victim advocates would, by the late 70s, be full-throatedly in favor of believing victims as the pendulum slowly began to swing in the direction of really addressing and dealing with these sorts of crimes. A similar dynamic was at play in the early days of the Me Too movement, for similar reasons. Though, we should note, in spite of the well-publicized fears of many men at the time, no overreach of the kind that led to the satanic panic has resulted from prosecuting prominent men who have been exposed for their well-attested actual crimes against women over whom they could exert power. Indeed, and the book notes the other major cultural forces that contributed in the years before the panic, including the fact that between 64 and 73, the percentage of Americans who acknowledged believing in a literal Satan went from 37 to 50 percent and kept rising for the next two decades. 
Of course, they also note that the fear of devil worshippers overrunning Mayberry were hilariously off-base, as most of these supposed Satanists were white, upper-middle-class suburban dudes who worshipped the devil by getting together with a few brohemes, reading some vaguely occult-sounding stuff from Anton LaVey or some other dusty book, and then accompany all of that with some half-assed improvised rituals, songs, chants, or other activities they picked up from popular culture, slasher movies, metal lyrics, etc. We have put together this advanced audio model of what two of these perpetrators might sound like while performing their evil rites. (laughs) Truly chilling. 